Indigenous Rights Radio, because knowledge is power. The 12th meeting of the Ad Hoc Open-Ended Intercessional Working Group on Article 8J and related provisions of the Convention on Biological Diversity and first meeting of the Ad Hoc Open-Ended Working Group on Benefit Sharing from the Use of Digital Sequence Information on Genetic Resources was held from November 12th to November 18th in Geneva, Switzerland. Cultural Survival's Brian Bishkul attended and spoke to Jennifer Corpus. My name is Jennifer Corpus. I'm part of the negotiating team for the International Indigenous Forum on Biodiversity, focusing on Agenda Item 6, which is uh, the new work program for the working group, as well as the institutional arrangements. Jennifer told us about some of the most important achievements from the meeting. We just finished with the 12th session of the ad hoc open-ended working group on the Article 8J and related provisions or provisions relevant for indigenous peoples and local communities. And um, going into this um, this uh, working group, we had two main objectives as the IIFB. One was to adopt a robust work program, and the second was to um, the, the institutional arrangements, basically uh, an agreement. We were hoping for an agreement that would establish a subsidiary body on Article 8J and related provisions, and that would be a permanent body as opposed to the working group, which is a temporary body. It's ad hoc, which means that it only has um, um, an objective or a mission, and once that mission is achieved, then it gets, um, it, it winds up, it finishes, because it's just a working group. Um, but we're, what, we're, what we were saying during uh, the working group meeting is that indigenous peoples are uh, issues are here to stay because of our interdependence with nature and our close relationship with nature. And so, because we, we will never go away, we will always have a role in stewarding nature, we need to have a permanent body that addresses our, uh, our situation, our context, our issues. What happened during this 12th meeting? What we had is a lot of brackets and um, a decision that um, that is essentially not a decision because the parties decided to bracket the main documents of this meeting, which means that they would need to be negotiated again at COP16 next year in October. So um, it's a little bit disheartening. However, it just uh, serves a little bit as a wake-up call and um, you know it instills in us this sense of urgency, sense of action, that we need to do a lot more intercessionally so that we achieve what we were aiming for that we unfortunately didn't get during this meeting. Jennifer also told us what some of the most important issues were that were left unresolved. What are the important issues that are left unresolved? Number one, of course, is on the subsidiary body. Um, we had a lot of support for the establishment of a, a subsidiary body. However, we had some parties saying that this is something that's completely new. We feel pressured. We feel like we are being pushed in one direction, whereas in the past there were documents that had three separate options. And the three separate options were continue the working group, 
The second is um, the second option is full integration into the work of the Substa and SBI, and the third option was a subsidiary body on Article 8J. Now the documents for this session only contained one option, and the reason for that is because from 2017, when the issue was first raised, there have been a constant um, several calls for submissions from parties, and in this recent round of calls, all the submissions favored a subsidiary body on Article 8J. So we couldn't understand what some of the parties were saying, that this is completely new and we feel pressured because it went through an entire process. So this is unresolved because of the concerns of some of the parties. The other also is the, um, the work program itself. <laughs> so we worked in the context of an ad hoc technical expert group and we developed a set of um, tasks in the work program that would advance um, the implementation of the global biodiversity framework and um, there were many items there that were watered down no so they there were countries that were saying we want voluntary in front of guidelines we want just identification of best practices. We want promotion of so-and-so. And so in a way, it was weakened, this work program, because now we cannot rely on tangible results. For example, on resource mobilization or direct access to finance. We wanted guidelines on what direct access to finance means for indigenous peoples uh, based on some of the best, uh, you know, case, best, best practice case studies. Um, but for some reason, this guidelines, this word guidelines was removed and instead it was just identify best practices, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is very, very amorphous. So, yeah, those are the two major issues. And then, of course, we had uh, at the working group, there is a standing agenda item that considers recommendations coming from the permanent forum. And in the past, you know, this all of these recommendations from the forum had been very, very helpful. They had a recommendation that the, the framework should take a human rights-based approach. They've had recommendations around a, a distinct pathway beyond protected areas and OECMs for recognizing indigenous territories. And all of those, they helped and we achieved it in the GBF. However, there is one, uh, one proposal that caused a lot of sensitivity and uh, polarization among the parties and that was the proposal to separate indigenous peoples from local communities or to stop uh, the recommendation was for the CBD to stop using local communities in conjunction with indigenous peoples and um, you know there are indigenous peoples can be found in many different contexts all over the world and it's sensitive particularly in Africa and, and in Asia where many countries don't really recognize indigenous peoples and so when this recommendation from the permanent forum was presented uh, the african group had a bad reaction uh, you know to this proposal they say that indigenous peoples and local communities are one and the same in their context that that's maybe true for some countries but in many countries it's not true because indigenous peoples self-identify as indigenous peoples but um, because it set off that really, really intense uh, reaction, um, it's unresolved. So 
the document con containing the, uh, the recommendations of the permanent forum is the entire document is now bracketed. And so, um, you know, all is not lost. It doesn't mean that it's scrapped, it's thrown into the wastebasket. What it means is that we need to revisit it at COP and we need to be able to um, synthesize our arguments, simplify them, make them stronger so that once we get to COP, we have uh, the decisions, hopefully, <laughs> that we are aiming for. Now, representatives from the Global Environmental Facility, or GEF, presented their plans for the implementation of the new Global Biodiversity Framework Fund, GBFF, established at COP15 last year. During the international dialogue with indigenous peoples on the implementation of the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework in Geneva, they revealed that there is no new mechanism to fund indigenous-led or indigenous-governed funds directly. Many indigenous leaders have shared their opinion about the inefficiencies of the GEF system when it comes to access to funds for indigenous peoples. We asked Jennifer if she was concerned that this was more of the same and if she thought that indigenous peoples continue to face barriers when accessing funds, but now from the GBFF. Um, one of the, um, the exciting things <laughs> that, uh, that was presented at this working group was the establishment of a global biodiversity fund. So if we remember, at COP15, there was um, an impasse. We, the, the, the global biodiversity framework almost wasn't adopted because the developing countries wanted a financing mechanism that is more accessible than the JEP. And so there was a, an agreement to establish the Global Biodiversity Framework Fund, so the GBF Fund. And um, to its credit, the JEF has worked hard on this. In uh, the world of multilateralism, they worked very fast. So in July, there was a, um, an agreement that uh, an aspirational portion of the GBF fund, 20%, would go to indigenous peoples. It was confirmed in the, in the Jeff uh, Assembly in August in Vancouver. And um, now they have managed to get contributions from countries. Uh, it's three countries, Canada, Germany, the United Kingdom. And it's more or less about 200 million. Um, and now they say that they have enough money to set up the fund and we're not exactly sure how much of that money can go to funding projects. So while it's exciting, finally we, you know, we have a commitment, a number from a fund for the, that's devoted to the implementation of the GBF. Um, and although it's aspirational, at least now we have this this number that gives visibility to the role of indigenous peoples. Um, there are questions, of course, around the number 20%. What is the scientific basis for that? Um, and somehow it doesn't correspond to the amount of land that indigenous peoples steward um, in, in the planet. No, So many studies show that about 40% of the land is stewarded by, by indigenous peoples, and if you include local communities, it's 50% according to the to landmark, to the FAO and the International Land Coalition. 
So it brings up the argument that maybe 20% is actually too low as the share, aspirational share for indigenous peoples. And in addition, um, in this um, announcement of the GBF fund, it is actually only parties that can access this fund. No? It's only parties and uh, this means that it, uh, it will not be able to provide money directly to indigenous-led funds. So that is, uh, that is a problem. And um, maybe another point would be that um, the GBF fund is supposed to get money from all sources. So it's not just from developed countries. Potentially, they could ask for money from developing countries, provided that they have enough money to contribute. But they're also talking about uh, accessing private money, including philanthropy and money from private corporations. And this can introduce a problem again for indigenous peoples because it's well known uh, that the GEF um, is quite inaccessible even for developing countries. I remember in COP15, the African countries were saying the inaccessibility of GEF is criminal. It's almost criminal. And so if countries are having problems, indigenous peoples more so <laughs> would have problems in accessing the funds. So the concern now is that if they are talking about accessing funds from all sources, we may end up with a situation where flexible funds from philanthropy get put into this very inaccessible structure. And, you know, it, it may result in, an, in the unintended consequence that, you know, you just um, prevent direct access by indigenous peoples to the funds that we could have access had the GBF fund not existed. So, um, yeah, that's a lot. So how do they account for the 20%, aspirational 20%? It's projects for indigenous peoples or projects carried out in indigenous peoples' territories. And there is no safeguard that it is actually indigenous peoples who will carry out the project. So again, we go to this paternalistic, <laughs> this very paternalistic model where other people are doing things for indigenous peoples. I think um, we need to move beyond that. I think the GBF fund needs to uh, rethink the mission, no? And they need to recognize that indigenous peoples are effective towards nature. They need to recognize that many indigenous peoples actually have the capacity to, um, to absorb the funds and to manage the funds. And we need a different model. For more on the rights of indigenous peoples, visit cs.org and follow Cultural Survival on Facebook and Twitter.